Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Episode 375 of The Bowery Boys. The Great Bank Robbery of 1878. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we're bringing you the story of a classic heist from the Gilded Age, one that was perpetrated by a host of foul creatures from the criminal underworld. (laughs) This is the story of one of the greatest bank robberies in American history. This was the top story in the New York Times, dated October 28th, 1878, under the headline, A Great Bank Robbery. Quote, The Manhattan Savings Institution on the northeast corner of Broadway and Bleecker Street, was the victim yesterday of one of the most daring and successful burglaries ever perpetrated. It is estimated that $3.5 million in cash and securities were carried off, and, and beyond mere suspicion, it is believed that the police have no clue of the robbers. And in the final tally, it was determined that the thieves stole nearly $3 million in assets. In today's money, that sum would be worth nearly $82 million. It's a staggering amount. Mm -hmm. The crooks responsible for this shocking crime were considered the most successful gang of bank robbers in the 19th century. Not Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and not Jesse James. Nope. The criminals in this story uh, may have names that are rather unfamiliar to you. We're talking about Marm Mandelbaum, Shane Draper, and the mastermind, a duplicitous fellow named George Leslie. He was so famous for his skills that he would be nicknamed the king of the bank robbers. So how exactly did you rob a bank in the 1870s? Well, listener, we'll tell you how. Um, As we Ocean Eleven ourselves into the story of Leslie and his gang here. Some details of the story are still rather unknown, and much of it is steeped in legend, and it's immortalized in in a kind of mixture of truth and fiction in the book The Gangs of New York by Herbert Asbury. But we're going to try to get to the bottom of this mysterious and fascinating crime. I mean, one way or another, Greg, we're going to crack it. So did they actually get away with this? Whatever happened to the money? And whatever happened to so dashing a thief as Mr. Leslie? 
A man who was a curious mix of highbrow and lowbrow. A man who brushed against New York's high society, even as he was plotting to burgle them. So ladies and gentlemen, please secure your valuables as we plot out the Great Bank Robbery of 1878. Well, Greg, by way of situation here, mm-hmm. why don't we situate the target of the crime? What, mm-hmm. where, where are we heading for this robbery? The prime target for our thieves today mm-hmm. is the Manhattan Savings Institution, located at 648 Broadway on Bleecker Street in today's NoHo neighborhood. So that's the, the northeast corner of Broadway and Bleecker. Precisely. This institution received its state charter in 1850 and opened the following year. According to an 1851 advertisement, the institution, quote, furnishes as it does to all persons a safe and convenient depository and security for earnings, where the avails of their industry may be saved to provide for the necessities of the future and the means of competency secured against the hour of sickness and adversity and ultimately by the accumulation of interest upon their deposits. Sums from $1 up to any larger amount will be received on deposit to be drawn out at the pleasure of the depositor, unquote. So in other words, this was a bank. I mean, this what you just described <laughs> yes. sounds like a bank. You can put in money and you can take it out when you wish. And hopefully it gains interest. Yes, so this is commonplace today, right? But this idea of personal banking, Mm -hmm. which we might call it today, a savings bank, is a relatively new one in America at this time. In 1819, the Bank for Savings in the City of New York was chartered and founded in the city by Thomas Eddy and first located down on Chambers Street. This is the very first savings bank in New York City, and was considered a philanthropic venture, a concept borrowed from European efforts, a quote, bank for the poor, as it was listed in the New York Evening Post. And it was built out of a drive by the Society for the Prevention of Pauperism to help laborers and tradesmen in the city. But to be clear, by this time, by the 18 teens, there were, of course, other kinds of banks, right? There were mm-hmm. state banks, there were national banks. But you're suggesting here that for many people, banks were something that was out of reach. Right. So the savings bank was essentially for the common man or, you know, in that advertisement, quote, sums from $1 up to any larger amount uh, will be received on deposit. But then by 1851, by the time that the Manhattan Savings Bank opens here at Broadway and Bleecker, Savings banks were for more than just the working class. Right. This obviously became a helpful service for wealthier individuals with greater assets. In theory, it was a bank for all New Yorkers. And um, for those top-tier customers at the Manhattan Savings Institution, they would keep their money here at the bank as well as other valuable possessions, including jewelry. The institution was famed for its vaults and for its top-notch security system. And by the time of our story that we're going to tell today, the bank was actually holding within its vaults the valuables of many prominent New York families, 
a place of great security, but also eventually a magnet for the criminal element. Okay, so you've given us our target here, and you've mm-hmm. certainly hinted at the crime. I'm now imagining, like, <laughs> you know, cashiers walking back, hands just spilling over with jewels that they're putting mm-hmm. into safety deposit boxes. But when I think of bank robberies, my mind goes to, like, you know, the American West and to Jesse James and and to great train robberies and things like that. But had there been major bank robberies in New York City? Had this been a major destination for bank thieves? Well, the very first reported bank robbery occurred on March 21st, 1831, when $245,000 worth of banknotes and Spanish doubloons were stolen from the Citibank of New York, which was located on Wall Street. Wait, stolen from the Citibank? As in yes. c- city? As in city bikes? The, <laughs> like, is that what we're talking about here? It actually is the institution, yes. Uh, the, the current banking institution, Citibank, traces its origins back to this original bank called the Citibank with a Y. Um, and it was the first bank ever robbed in New York. So $250,000 is worth about $60 million in today's dollars. Wow, that's a lot of doubloons and <laughs> and banknotes. Yeah, that's what they ran off with? Yeah, I mean, visualize things very differently. There were no suitcases of crisp bills or uh, bricks of gold here. You know, it wasn't until the Civil War that there would even be a national printed currency, although there had been coinage before this time, of course. And what did they break into in 1831? Were they cracking into a safe? No, actually, the valuables were in a room locked with a key. Oh, and that doesn't sound very safe. <laughs> no, um, they had a skeleton key and obviously broke in. The modern burglar-resistant safe was invented in England by Charles and Jeremiah Chubb later that decade, with further innovation in high demand, of course, into the Industrial Revolution and, of course, into the Gilded Age. This is a very obvious statement, but one we should add is that all wealth was physical back then, whether it would be paper or coinage, gold or silver, you know, jewels, other kinds of objects. With more sophisticated safe and lock technologies, by the 1860s, banks began holding more physical wealth, more valuables you know, inside of them. Mm-hmm. In just a few short decades, it became inconceivable to store valuables in any place but a bank. Although, of course, the wealthiest New Yorkers did have personal safes in their homes. But even in these banks with their secure vaults and and safes, I mean, they could still fall prey to, say, a fire. Mm -hmm. Just because valuables were locked away inside a safe, it didn't make them 100% safe from other kinds of disasters. No, and it certainly didn't make them safe from robberies. So you mentioned Jesse James earlier, yeah. and James and the Younger Game famously robbed several banks and then later trains from 1866 until the time he was gunned down in Missouri in 1882. His legend was written about in books and newspapers and had a profound effect on the star of our story today, George Leonidas Leslie. Leonidas, named after an ancient king of Sparta, if I'm not mistaken, 
anybody named after an ancient king of Sparta is going to be somebody to watch out for. <laughs> um, I would even call this story a Greek tragedy, not to hint oh. at the ending here a little bit. But um, anyway, George Leslie was born in Western New York in 1842. Uh, his family moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, where his father became a successful beer brewer. George had a, an extremely fine education from what we know about him, and he even trained as an architect at the University of Cincinnati, and then for a short time set up an architectural firm in Cincinnati during the Civil War. And did he actually design anything as an architect? I don't think so, but his knowledge of architecture and engineering would come in quite handy later. Now, in 1867, with both of his parents dead, he's actually decided to sell his home and the brewery and his architectural firm. And then in 1869, at around the age 27, George Leslie moved to New York, bolstered by a small fortune and even some significant family connections. Yes, and once he got to New York then, I mean, he is portrayed in numerous sources as arriving in New York and then through his money and his upbringing and connections, he became a familiar face in New York society. Now, one of the sources that we have to lean into here is Herbert Asbury in his book, The Gangs of New York, in which he dedicates a chapter to the life of George Leslie. He writes that when he got to New York, he, quote, posed as a man of independent means and because of his education and family connections was accepted in good society in New York. He belonged to several excellent clubs and was known as a bon vivant and a man about town. He was a familiar figure at theater openings and art exhibitions and acquired a considerable reputation as an amateur bibliophile. He possessed a fine group of first editions and was frequently consulted by other collectors. So living a grand, respectable life in mm -hmm. New York here, post-Civil War, the flourishing Gilded Age here, a man about town. But meanwhile... Yeah, meanwhile, he was developing connections in the underworld. He also, we need to add, had several names and aliases, okay, which makes researching the story even more complicated. He, he was born George Leonidas Leslie, but as he got into the underworld and into crime, he would go by George Howard. And he would also be known as Western George because he was from out west. He was, you know, way out west in Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the 1870s, Ohio was pretty far west, and it's certainly further west than Hoboken. <laughs> Undeniably, yes. <laughs> George was also fond of the ladies, and most of the accounts of his life include a list of affairs and romantic trysts that he allegedly enjoyed, including with the mistresses of some of his own associates. Now, once in New York, he would sort of establish a double life, right? Hobnobbing in some of these society circles, while at the same time entering into the criminal underworld in New York City. An underworld vibrant with gang activity and crime. And their stories are, of course, filled with colorful characters. Like Shang Draper, for example. Shang Draper. What's his story? Well, his real name was Thomas Draper. He was a notorious criminal and a gang leader. 
But he also kept a saloon and would be known for drugging unsuspected patrons and then hoisting them off to his ship to serve in the Merchant Marine, otherwise known as Shanghai, unsuspecting patrons at his bar, which won him this nickname, Shang Draper. Mm. Well, I, I love that this George Leslie here, um, who is alleged to be a expert on first volumes, a bibliophile. Bibliophile, a, a, yeah. A bibliophile, according to Herbert Asbury, could also rub shoulders with those who are committing Shanghai-type crimes in less respectable quarters of the city. Well, he also befriended a colorful character named Frederica Mendelbaum, Mandelbaum, whom everybody called Marm. Marm Mandelbaum immigrated from Prussia, today's Germany, in 1850 with her husband, and they both were peddlers on the Lower East Side, where they'd soon open a small store on Clinton Street. But by the mid-1850s, most of the merchandise that they were selling out of this little store was hot. Mm -hmm. It turns out that their store was a front for selling off stolen goods which made her incredibly valuable to thieves, central, actually, to their business because thieves needed a way to sell off their booty, and she could do it. She was known in the underworld as a fence. In fact, she was called the Queen of the Fences, and she, in fact, is the one who nicknamed George Leslie Western George. And so George found himself to be a friend and associate of Marm Mandelbaum, who also happened to have all sorts of connections to different elements um, of the criminal scene here in New York. Yes, yeah, she was a connector. Uh, she also invested in planned heists and burglaries. She would put up money so that thieves could actually buy necessary tools and support themselves while they were planning for a, a break-in. Um, and as as her operations would grow... She had to buy or rent her own warehouses um, just to have places to store all of this hot, you know, stolen goods. Mm -hmm. So then here at Marm's shop, she would also upstairs in her lavish apartment throw big dinner parties. And George started to attend these parties. Um, this is where he met Shane Draper. This is where he met a whole host of prominent criminals and also the politicians and the law enforcement people who were getting paid off to protect these criminals. So when would Leslie start making a criminal name for himself? Well, his first big job is thought to be a massive robbery that took place on June 27th, 1869, at the Ocean National Bank on Greenwich and Fulton Streets in Lower Manhattan. In the 1887 book, Recollections of a New York City Chief of Police, by George W. Walling, who had been the superintendent of police from 1874 to 1885. Walling details the oddities of that particular break-in um, and the mysterious manner in which, you know, the thieves managed to break into the safe, which was considered at the time to be completely impenetrable. But the biggest oddity of that break-in at the Ocean National Bank was that the thieves ran off with more than $768,000 but left behind $1.8 million, much of it on the floor of the bank. Quote, The floor was covered with powder cans, fuses, drills, blowpipes, bits, wedges, jack screws, and steel and copper sledges. 
More wonderful, though, than all the burglar's tools was the wealth which lay scattered over the floor, left by the thieves. Here were bags of gold and nickel coins, bundles of checks, bonds, notes, books, papers, and fractional currency, all mixed up in a hopeless confusion and all soaked with water. This all sounds very mysterious. How exactly did Leslie allegedly pull all of this off? Well, as the author Bernard Lillis writes in the book Capital of Capital, it's thought that Leslie used his social connections to get an accomplice hired at the bank as a janitor, and then he would provide Leslie and the others with access to the bank. And then once inside the bank, Leslie would drill a small hole in the safe so that he could slip in a little strip of metal that he called his little joker. And we'll get to the little joker a little bit later in the show, <laughs> but it was instrumental in his ability to, to crack those safes. And it sounds like they just brought an immense number of items uh, to help in their heist here that were scattered all over the floor and they left them here. Yeah, they basically brought like an entire aisle from Home Depot and left it on the floor of the <laughs> yes. bank. How did they transport this inside? Well, Leslie had planned that out as well. He rented out the shop that was located directly beneath the bank, and then he filled a cupboard inside that shop with, with all the tools that would be needed. And then during the actual break-in, he drilled holes in the ceiling of that shop to give the thieves quick access to the tools. And then as far as all the gold that was left on the floor of the bank, it does indeed seem odd that they would leave it all behind. But that was even thought to be intentional because bags of gold are extremely heavy. I don't know if you've ever hauled around a bag of gold, mm -mm. but <laughs> it's hard to run off with a bag of gold or lots of bags of gold. He surmised that it would be much easier for them to escape carrying bags of paper currency. And indeed they would. They'd run off with $768,000 worth of cash and securities. So this particular group of bank robbers, led by George Leslie, were responsible for a great number of bank robberies throughout the 1870s. Was George ever caught? Well, according to Asbury, he took part in a robbery in Norristown, Pennsylvania, near Philadelphia in 1870, along with another thief, Gilbert Yost. And they were actually caught in the process. Leslie would be briefly jailed, but according to Asbury, through his connections, he would then be released on bail, which he forfeited and skipped town back to New York. Hmm. George preferred to plan these operations in most cases, not necessarily participate in them directly. Yes, and we'll get into his skills as a planner in a moment, but this gang was extremely effective and the number of robberies and the amount taken so large that the police estimated, in fact, that from 1869 to 1878, George Leslie and his gang were responsible for more than 80% of all the bank robberies in the country. Wow. It's astonishing. But within a few years of this bank job here at the Ocean National Bank, he would move on to start planning a break-in that would define his career. We'll get to that legendary heist after this. Mm -hmm. 
On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. With my busy life, I use shipped same-day delivery to keep up. When I need a jar of extra creamy peanut butter delivered, I know my personal shopper Amber will come through. And if it's not on the shelf, she asks them to check the bag. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at shipped.com. Now, it's believed that George Leslie identified the Manhattan Savings Institution, which we introduced earlier in our show at Broadway and Bleecker, He identified it as the ultimate target for a daring bank robbery as early as 1873, although he wouldn't really start putting work into this robbery until 1875, two years later. This savings bank had become one of New York's largest and most reliable financial institutions with millions of dollars in assets by the 1870s. And the bank was also famed for its tight security. In fact, it was probably the difficulty of the task that appealed to somebody like Leslie. Well, after planning so many successful bank robberies, I mean, he must have felt pretty confident, right? And Mm -hmm. sort of in command of these operations. He could tackle it. Well, yeah, I mean, he was at the top of his game. In fact, let's actually just pause for a moment and discuss in detail his particular skill set. Because George Leslie was no ordinary criminal. I would say that some of these characterizations that we've read, you know, you know, many of them are kind of like steeped in in legend. You mean he wasn't really a bibliophile? Well, you know, Asbury certainly likes to paint a dramatic, thrilling picture. He often sounds more like a villain from a Sherlock Holmes book or even a Batman villain at times. <laughs> you know, part of what made him different was his, you know, breeding, as they would say, right? So he was a gentleman or fashioned himself to be a gentleman who could maneuver through New York society 
and was allowed into exclusive corridors of the rich and famous where he could become privy to you know, certain information about financial institutions. He could hear tales of men and women discussing where their assets, where their jewelry was being kept. And certainly his skills as an architect could come in handy as well. Yeah, I would even say that George Leslie is a great example of the dark uses of the American higher education system. <laughs> um, but, you know, he used his talents in very unconventional ways. As a trained architect, but with a specific eye towards breaking and entering, mm-hmm. Leslie would wander the city studying the city's architecture and certain flaws in places that could be easily exploited, say a building in a back alley with unguarded windows, or a street corner that the gaslights failed to illuminate on certain nights. Mm-hmm. He was an extraordinarily patient person, which certainly set him apart from some of the others in his criminal enterprise here. And I mean, we're talking New York, but it wasn't just in New York. They robbed banks all over the place. No matter where the city was, he would spend a great deal of time in those places, just kind of mapping out the whole thing, getting the number on a particular city. According to author Jeff Minot, in his excellent book, A Burglar's Guide to the City, quote, He had learned years earlier that architectural expertise is nothing without urban expertise. If you don't know how to get away with the crime, you might as well not commit it, unquote. There is a certain irony, you know, in that he was trained to design the buildings of a great American city. Mm -hmm. And instead, here we see that he's actually exploiting that knowledge in order to break into those buildings and actually Uh steal the funds of that city itself. Yeah, I mean, Leslie was bold, according to all these accounts, even shameless. Um, He sometimes deposited a large amount of money into a bank that was going to be robbed. He would put his own money in the bank. Oh, he'd get his money back. (laughs) He wouldn't, yes, he would indeed. You know, that way he could walk in observe the teller's procedures, and sometimes even charm the bank executives themselves, which is crazy, all the while taking note of the safe and security of the places. Wow. Then, in many cases, he would often break into the bank itself first, but not take anything. Just like reconnaissance missions? (laughs) Yes. To case the place, essentially, just walk around and not take anything. In fact, he did this at the Manhattan Savings Institution twice. He broke into the back undetected and simply studied the rooms and then drew up blueprints in his notebook. And then I'm sure handing those notepads over to his cronies to study so that they could also be familiar with the joint. Oh, but he did more than that, Tom. This is actually where Marm Mandelbaum comes in, or rather her warehouses that you mentioned earlier. I'm glad we're getting back to Marm. We've been Marmless for too long (laughs) here, Greg. Well, Marm is is back in the story because she allowed Leslie to use her warehouses, in particular one in Brooklyn. You know, she would use these warehouses— for her cronies to hide out, and of course you could store stolen merchandise here. Well, in anticipation of a bank robbery, and to train the other members 
of the things that he had observed firsthand from breaking in, Leslie actually built replicas of the bank vaults and the layouts of the place. He built them here at these warehouses with precise locations of rooms and various features in each place so that the criminals could then plan extremely accurately their movements. They would train how to walk silently through these rooms, carrying heavy bags representing large sums of money uh, so they could you know, negotiate tight places without detection. It's also cinematic, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> haven't we seen this in a million different movies? Like the architect is building a replica of the bank that he's planning to break into? Yeah, he was a total genius. But didn't he also like run the risk of being around a little too much, you know, sort of Mm -hmm. becoming a little suspicious as, oh boy, here comes that guy again who's going to make small talk with the cashier (laughs) and try to get behind the the teller desk. I mean, wasn't he afraid of seeming a bit suspicious? Well, to be extra cautious, you know, should he be recognized from one of these visits that he paid to the banks? As you mentioned, Leslie often did not join the robbers themselves during the heist. He was just more the mastermind. Yeah, he would stay behind, trained everyone to perfection, and then took a cut of the stolen assets once they were taken back to the warehouse. Of course, when he did become part of the robbery, and he was on on a few of them, he came equipped with the tools of the trade, buying the most expensive items because he knew that they would always pay off in the end. But his most useful and most reliable instrument was a wheel of soft tin attached to a wire. This, as you mentioned earlier, was his little joker. Oh, right, the little joker. So how did this work again? I I mentioned that he would drill a hole into a safe and then slip in a little piece of tin. Well, it was a device that could be implanted behind a safe dial. Uh, So without the knowledge of the person opening the lock, because it would would be slipped in prior to that, Mm -hmm. this wire then would be nicked or dented when the dial was turned. Thus, Leslie could actually figure out the safe's combination when he would later retrieve the wire and then study the number of dents that had been made onto the wire. So the combination itself, the combination was actually sort of ticking off or making some sort of indentation into the wire, which he could then study? Yes, it was pressed into the wire itself. And he, you know, and he had managed to use this hundreds of times. So it was clearly, you know, perhaps his most valuable instrument in his arsenal, in his bat belt, if you will. (laughs) Would you say that his Lil Joker was actually the ace up his sleeve? Oh, he never went to a robbery without it. And this all makes sense, I suppose. Some kind of sense, yes. (laughs) Some kind of sense. But a real basic question here. How would he actually get the little joker inside the safe in the first place? Like, you have to get into the bank, install Mm -hmm. this thing, and then retrieve it, and then take it home to your laboratory, I suppose, and study it under a magnifying <laughs> glass. Like, how's he getting in and out of the bank? Well, there's a few ways. He would sometimes do it himself during one of his quiet break-ins. He would install it, or he would be helped out using another one of his common tricks, which he used over at the Ocean National Bank, which was having an inside man 
you know, either a teller or a night watchman that he would bribe and be allowed in. On occasion, because these things, you know, were planned really well and advanced, one of Leslie's own gang members would get a job at the bank. And, of course, that would be another way he could get in. But wouldn't they run the risk again of having, like, I don't know, law enforcement notice a pattern here, you know, that every place that Eddie the Fish gets hired gets robbed? (laughs) I mean, wouldn't they catch on? Well, they had a number of like little tricks at each of these robberies, basically to obscure the information that detectives could find on the scene. Uh, So one helpful hint, I guess, is to disorient any witnesses that were around at the bank robbery. They chose Mm -hmm. banks where guards or security personnel were older and might be prone to misremembering. Mm -hmm. And, And then, of course, once inside the banks, they changed all of the clocks so that nobody could specifically identify the exact time of their criminal performance. Wow, that's I, like messing with their heads. I mean, they've yeah, they've it's just crazy. <laughs> been through a bank robbery, and and you're changing the the dials on the clocks too. I mean, that's that's kind of mean. <laughs> they would even change their pocket watches. Finally, they would sometimes incapacitate witnesses. You mean by like knocking them out, not killing them? Uh, No, Leslie wanted to do things in a non-violent way. To quote from the authors Jerry Clark and Ed Palatella in their book, A History of Heists, quote, Leslie grew up viewing Jesse James and Frank James as heroes, though he decided early on to forsake the gunplay that Jesse James employed so readily in war-fractured Missouri. Leslie lusted for the money and the fame, not the violence. Jesse James was brash and flash. George Leslie would be cerebral, unquote. But not every one of their heists would be foolproof. In fact, months before the Manhattan Savings robbery, the gang was almost waylaid by a botched robbery in February of 1878 at a bank that they targeted in Dexter, Maine. Now, as with the other robberies, the gang all arrived out of town separately, planning to only see one another on the night of the robbery. And Leslie decided to take part in this particular heist. He'd bribed an employee at the bank named James Barron, who helped him scope the place out. But when they finally broke into the bank that night, Barron was there and he actually turned on them, saying that he would not help them then revealed to Leslie and the gang that the bank actually had a timed lock, which could only be opened in the morning. So they were hours too early. Well, they were really angry, and they pistol-whipped Baron, tied him up, and then fled the bank. But they had been too rough on James Barron. From the New York Times on February 24th, 1878, quote, Bank treasurer murdered. When the doors of the savings bank room had been broken open, Barron's groans could be heard in the vault in which he was locked. He was found lying on the floor handcuffed, gagged, and rope about his neck. He was taken out in a senseless condition and died at 5.30 in the morning. He had several severe wounds on his head. Wow, this murder must have really shaken Leslie. Yeah, this was actually a very disturbing omen for him. 
needless to say, for the heist that was about to come here, the Manhattan Savings Institution heist, which Leslie had been directly planning here, you know, for almost three years now. In fact, this upcoming heist would have many of the same hallmarks as the far smaller Dexter Main crime, including an inside man. Over here at the Manhattan Bank, it was actually a member of their gang named Pat Shevlin who had been hired as a bank guard. But there were obviously, as being a much greater take here and a much more prominent bank in New York City, there were many, many more risks with this job. But something else had happened in Dexter. The botched robbery had actually shaken the trust between the members of the gang, and the men began to look at each other in more suspect ways. Could any of them really be trusted to do their jobs? On May 29th, 1878, George Leslie was seen having a drink at a Brooklyn saloon in the presence of his bodyguard, a Bowery rough by the name of John Walsh, also known as Johnny the Mick. Leslie received a note while he was at the saloon, and then he left in a carriage, leaving Johnny behind. Then, George Leslie vanished without a trace. Now, did he intend to tell the police about this upcoming crime, about the plans of this upcoming crime? Was he guilt-ridden about the murder of James Barron and then just essentially decided to flee town and just forget the whole thing? Or was he planning his own heist? But even though Leslie was gone, that didn't stop the robbery at the Manhattan Savings Institution. No, a robbery that was planned to finally take place on the morning of Sunday, October 27th, 1878. George Washington Walling, the superintendent of the police at the time, mm -hmm. later wrote in his book, quote, The bells of Old Trinity and St. Paul's had barely finished striking the hour of 10 on the morning of Sunday, October 27, 1878, when a man, almost breathless and quivering with excitement, rushed into the little barber shop in Bleecker Street under the Manhattan Institute for Savings. For a moment, he was unable to utter a word in explanation for his unceremonious entrance. At length, he gasped out, The bank's been robbed! This man was Louis Werkel, a janitor at the Manhattan Bank building, who explained that, quote, Shortly after six o'clock that morning, while he was dressing, seven or eight men burst into the door of his bedroom. They all wore masks, and securely binding him, his wife and his mother-in-law, left one of their number to guard the terrified trio. Shortly before 10, the trio were released, and going into the bank, he found to his dismay that the vault had been broken into. It was found that the total sum stolen amounted to $2,747,700, of which $2,506,700 was in registered bonds, $241,000 in coupon bonds, and $12,764 in cash. So after three years of careful planning, the gang was successfully able to rob the bank, thanks, of course, to their inside man, Pat Shevlin. Right, who was working as the night watchman. And the gang of criminals here included Jimmy Hope, William Kelly, Abe Coakley, 
Banjo Pete Emerson and Bill Kelly. Uh, they entered at six o'clock in the morning, which was the time that the the previous night watchman was getting off. And the previous night watchman, who was an honest man, left at six o'clock in the morning, and his habit was to knock on the door of the janitor's apartment. And when the janitor would knock back to say, yep, I'm up, the night watchman could leave. So there was a knock at his door. The janitor knocked back. He was up for the day. And the honest night watchman left the bank to go home. Now, Pat Shevlin was to replace him at six o'clock. He would arrive shortly thereafter. So once the honest guard was out of the way, the group of criminals came in and they headed straight for the janitor's apartment and they locked up that trio, the janitor, his wife, and his mother-in-law. Now, according to a report in the New York Times the next year, this group then forced the combination for the safe out of the janitor. He knew, he was one of the people who knew how to open the main door of the safe. They got the combination from him, and then Big Bill Kelly stayed in the apartment guarding that locked up family while the others set about doing their job. After the thieves had opened the main door with the combination, they had to use actual force to open up more of the compartments inside the safe, which made a decent amount of noise because the, the compartments were made of solid steel. Police Chief Walling writes, quote, To get at their contents, the burglars had to wreck them utterly, but they failed to open several compartments, which contained large amounts of cash. The whole job was completed in the most expeditious manner, only two and a half or three hours being consumed in the operation. Well, sounds like a smooth operation thus far. Yes, although the Times noted in their coverage, quote, a false alarm caused the burglars to abandon one of the compartments of a safe, which contained about a quarter of a million dollars in money and negotiable securities. The door of that compartment had been wedged, and just a few more wrenches with a combination jimmy would have torn the door off. But regardless, the thieves grabbed what they could, stuffed it into satchels, and headed for an escape. And you're telling me that they were not noticed at all by anyone, including the police, because it sounds like they were making a lot of noise early in the morning at a bank on a Sunday morning. I would think that that would draw a lot of notice. <laughs> yeah, well, there was a, a police officer from the 19th Precinct, an officer, John Nugent, who had actually been bribed to stay away. However, another officer, a clean one, Officer Van Orden, did pass by the bank during the operation, and he did look in and was surprised to notice that the vault, which you could clearly see normally from the giant windows on the sidewalk, had been obscured, had been hidden by a screen. That was part of Leslie's plan, was to put a screen in front of it to block the view from the sidewalk so that the burglars could get to work behind the screen. So this honest police officer who was passing was a little concerned about that. But then his attention was was drawn by the janitor who was inside the main waiting room and he was uh, walking around, dusting off the furniture and he nodded to the officer who, you know, shook his head and nodded back and then just kept walking. It wasn't a janitor, of course. It was Abe Coakley, one of the robbers who was dressed up and just sort of playing the part. And soon after, the thieves would make a break for it out the back door. 
And a few hours later, around 10 o'clock in the morning, Workle, the, the janitor, would break free, head to the barbershop, yell that the bank's been robbed, and within an hour, the bank would be crawling with policemen. And the entire city was buzzing about this, as you can imagine. I mean, it was the front page story in the New York Times the following day. Yeah, I mean, here it is on the front page, October 28th, 1878, under the headline, A Great Bank Robbery, the Manhattan Savings Institution Robbed. They even have a diagram. Did you see that? The diagram of mm-hmm. the bank so that they really walk you through the entire robbery. And they managed to get away with an enormous sum of money here. Yeah, $2,747,000 in cash and bonds. But there's a catch, Greg. Of that amount, the vast number of bonds and securities in that were actually made out to other people and other institutions. They couldn't be cashed in. They were not negotiable. So the thieves really only hauled off $11,000 in cash. And the bank recovered really, you know, the rest by just canceling the securities or the bonds, except for an additional $43,000 in securities that were stolen. So would the police ever track down these robbers? I mean, would they or did they ever crack this case? Yes, but it would take them many months, not until six months later in May of 1879, when Johnny Dobbs, another burglar in their sort of orbit of criminals, would be arrested at a Philadelphia bank trying to pass off and cash in some of those stolen bonds. So they were sort of hot on the trail. The arrests and the convictions started to happen. Jimmy Hope, Bill Kelly, the guy who was watching over the janitor and his wife Mm -hmm. and mother-in-law, would both be convicted. Um, Abe Coakley and Banjo Pete Emerson were acquitted. (laughs) As for Patrick Shevlin, you know, the the inside night watchman, he was a suspect pretty much immediately. And the, the police and detectives were trailing him. They smelled something fishy about this guy and noticed mm. pretty quickly that he seemed to be connected to criminals in New York and other criminals from other cities. He would later be hauled in and would confess uh, to his participation. Patrolman Nugent, who was bribed, would escape prison for this crime, but shortly thereafter, he'd be convicted for another offense. So most of the criminals would be brought to justice. Of course, you'll notice that I didn't say a word about George Leslie, because although he planned the heist, he didn't actually participate in the break-in. Whatever happened to George Leslie... Well, on June 4th, 1878, the body of George Leslie was found in a bush in Yonkers, New York, near a spot known as Tramp's Rock. George had been shot twice, in the head and in the heart. A revolver was found near the body as though somebody had set up the scene of the crime as some sort of suicide scene. That's obviously not what happened. This was murder. Some believe that he was killed by his fellow gang member, Shane Draper. Some reports suggest that George Leslie had been actually playing around on the side with Shane's wife, Babe Draper. And it was suspected that Leslie had even been murdered on the night of his visit to that Brooklyn saloon. So then, really, we don't know what happened 
to George Leslie. No, nobody was ever charged for the crime of murdering Leslie. And to this day, it, it is an unsolved mystery. Despite the many millions of dollars that he helped purloin from American banks over the years, George Leslie was buried in a pauper's grave at Cypress Hill Cemetery in Queens. As for the Manhattan Savings Institution, the building would be demolished in 1889 and would be replaced two years later with a newer building in red brick and terracotta that still stands there today. So the building there today is actually a Manhattan Savings Institution building. It just wasn't the actual bank that was broken into several years before. Right. Same bank, different building. By the mid-20th century, the bank was out of the building and the building itself had converted into lofts. Um, You can still see the MSI, Manhattan Savings Institute, insignia way up high on the facade at the top of the building. But there is, of course, no evidence that this was the location of one of the most notorious robberies in American history. Visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for more information on the great robbery, including links to some of the newspaper articles we were talking about and illustrations of bank robbers at work. We would like to thank all of those who support us at Patreon.com, where for a small donation, you help us keep the show operating and creating new material for you every two weeks. Patrons also got early access to tickets from our Joe's Pub show. Uh, We just had a wonderful show there on Halloween night, and many patrons were in the audience. And so we want to thank all of you for for attending the show. Hopefully we can do many more in the future. But those who were on Patreon got to snatch up those seats first. Yeah, it was such a thrill to see and to meet so many patrons at Joe's Pub at the show Um, And it was just so good to be back in front of a live audience. It was so exciting. We can't wait to do more events. We can't wait to be back out in the public again. And we hope that you'll join us. But one way to get early access to information about those events is to join us at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys. And we also have audio extras as well, like the Bowery Boys Takeout, and the Bowery Boys Movie Club. You'll be joining fellow new patrons, Arnold J., Tyson J., Lydia C., and Eileen D. from New York, Joshua W. from the UK, and additional patrons, Kevin K., Roger K., David A., and Peggy. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon. Thank you so much. Also, be sure to swing by BoweryBoysWalks.com to check out our latest editions, our, our newest walking tours. We're heading to New York's most fascinating neighborhoods, bringing the city's history to life one step at a time. That's BoweryBoysWalks.com. So thank you very much for joining us. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? 
In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.